We're going to read together out loud 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. This is part four of our series on how to study the Bible, and we're going to be talking today uh, briefly, as many of the blanks as we can get filled in this morning, we will, and Pastor James will next week pick up here and, and continue on with some more of this on the, the topic today is the trustworthiness of the Bible. Can we trust it? Is what we have in front of us accurate to what was originally written, or, or did someone change it? And secondly, is it true, or is it fiction? Um, those are the two things we're going to try and tackle. Um, we will try, my goal today is to scratch the surface. I also want you to know that um, a lot of what we'll present to you today is not my original research that I've done. I had to leave, lean heavily on the work of people much smarter than me, people like Josh McDowell, people like Sean McDowell, people like Norman Geisler, and other people who have studied some of these topics deely. And what I'm going to do is, prevent to, is present to you the vetted ironclad uh, results of some of their research this morning in an effort to give you some information that will build your faith today. So we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Let's read out loud together. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear Then, if people speak against you, you will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Those of you that have been in our growth groups studying throughout this, um, the very first word of this verse, I want you to circle it. What is the first word? Instead, that's a clue. It's a shift. So if we had time this morning, I'd go back to the paragraph before and see what he was saying in the paragraph before and then see what he counters by saying instead. So that's just a clue for you to go on later. We'll just have to file that away. Um, but who wrote, I'm going to ask, start with a tough question, a couple questions this morning, make sure you're still with me. Who wrote Peter? Not Paul. I heard someone say Paul and I realized I told you when in doubt, guess Paul. Um, Peter. Peter wrote this. Quick word association. What do you think of when you think of Peter? The Rock, okay? Not Dwayne Johnson in the WWE and the world's highest paid actor, but like the original Rock. Jesus said, upon this Rock, I will build my kingdom, right? So we think of him as the Rock. What else do you think of when you think of Peter? Fisherman. Yeah, do you think he grew up thinking he was going to write books of the Bible? No. Grew up thinking he was going to try and be a successful fisherman, and he was. Had a good crew working for him, good successful fisherman, life skills that went along with him. What else do you think of? What's that? First boat, denial. First boat, denial. He was an apostle. Walked on water for a while, a couple steps. Well, no, really, honestly, you could frame him in one of two ways. And I like the way Pastor, Pastor Stewart's the glass half full guy. You could say Peter was, man, he denied Jesus, or you could say he was the only disciple that even followed him that far. You could say he sunk when he got in the water, or you could say he was the only disciple that got out of the boat. He was either the last man standing or the first one to sink. Depending on how you frame Peter, there's a lot of stories that are kind of embarrassing about Peter that are included in the Gospels. And who wrote the Gospels? Some of his buddies. Would you write embarrassing stories about yourself if you knew you were perpetuating a lie? (laughs) Interesting. A lot of things about Peter. And interestingly enough, Peter writes in this letter to Jewish exiles who had become Christians who were dispersed throughout Asia Minor during the Roman rule. 
In other words, he's writing to new Christians who, because of their belief in Jesus, and they're saying, we believe in the empty tomb, faced religious persecution under the Romans, and left Jerusalem and spread out all over Asia Minor. And now Peter's writing a how-to portion of his letter on how to evangelize, how to share your faith. He's giving them one of the only textbooks they had at their time as to how to share their faith, and he knows he's writing to believers who were living in a culture that was either hostile or indifferent to Christianity. And the sentence, there's a lot we could pull out of this paragraph, but in the 16 minutes I have left, I want to focus on one sentence. It's the second sentence. Here's what it says. If someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. That's what it says in the New Living Translation. Let me read to you what it says in two other translations, in the New International Version and in the New American Standard Version. In the NIV, he says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The NAS says this, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So in the NLT, he says, be ready to explain what you believe. In the NIV, he says, be prepared to give an answer for the reasons why you believe what you believe. In the NAS, he says, be ready to make a defense and give an account for what you believe to be true. What Peter's telling these early Christians who were sent out, we don't believe that they were just scattered, we believe they were sent, right? We believe that if they would have stayed there in Jerusalem, how would we have gotten the gospel today? We believe that what they thought was difficulty and what really was, God uses as a way to send them out. He sent them out as baby Christians without all the textbooks, without podcasts, without a pastor in many cases preaching to them, without all these different tools you and I have, without being able to Google the five ways to reach your friend for Jesus. He sent them out into a world that was hostile towards Christians. And yet he raises up Peter and Peter writes to them, you need to be prepared to give an answer to people who won't just accept the facts of what you believe. That's what he said to them. You need to be prepared to answer the question, why? What is he telling us today? He's saying this, friend, if you and I want to be most effective in evangelism, we not only need to know the what and the who, we need to know the why behind what we believe. He says answering that question of why helps in many cases in evangelism. I know many of you are saying, Pastor, we don't need all the facts. We just have to believe. True. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. However, for many people, it never goes further than that. They, they have a little moment and then they never dig into the reasons why. Let me ask you four questions this morning. Do you believe in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes, many of you. Some of you would say no. I'm going to try and change your mind by the end of the service, okay? Just being very clear about where I'm going this morning. Secondly, do you believe that this Bible right here is the Word of God? Do you believe that it is true, that it's historically reliable, and that it is accurate? Why? Because it's the Word of God. Well, if I didn't believe in the Bible, I'd say, well, of course, everybody says it's the Word of God. Why? Why do you believe that it is? Historians, because I want to. (laughs) And I appreciate you saying that. That's one of the worst answers we can give. Here's why. (laughs) I planted him. See, I paid him five bucks to say that. (laughs) But listen, I think a lot of us would boil our answer. Well, because I want to believe it. Well, what about the Muslim sitting here in the second row who says, I believe the Koran is true. 
Does that make the Quran true? You see, most of this generation believes that we, could, that, that we can just create truth through our belief. If I believe it, then it must be true. 85% of all evangelical born-again teenagers believe truth is constantly changing. What is true yesterday is not true today, and what is true today will not be true to tomorrow. That's what they believe. And so when you go to someone who doesn't believe this, you say, well, why is it true? Well, because I believe that it is. Well, what about tomorrow? What about the next day? You see, the difference between some Christians and other Christians, some believe this is, some say the Bible is true because I believe it, but where I want us to go is I, be, the Bible, the Bible, I believe the Bible is true because it's true. In other words, it's true, therefore I believe it. Not that I believe it, therefore it's true. My son is convinced with all his heart that Santa Claus is real. With all his heart. There's going to come a day where his definition of truth changes. Does that mean that all of a sudden truth changed or that his perception of truth changed? See, there's people who say the definition of truth changes all the time. Well, what about, you know, back in the 1400s, 1300s, everybody thought the earth was flat. That was truth to them. What changes people's mind about what truth is? Is two things. Personal testimony or experience and concrete evidence. This is why back in the 1300s and 1400s when the sailors got in their boats to go sail off in the world, their families and kids came and said goodbye to them because they honestly God thought they were going to sail to the end of the earth and fall off. But what happens is they kept sailing farther out and coming back and farther out and coming back and then they got to the new world and they came back and eventually they sailed out and went a whole way around and came back. And their experience, their personal testimony was maybe the earth isn't flat, it's actually round. And then later on, they started, in, you know, getting measurements, and they'd measure distance between here and the stars at different points, and they started to come to the conclusion, the earth is not flat like we thought, it's actually round. And my proponents, the, the opponents of this argument would say, well, see, truth changed. Did truth change? The whole time they thought the earth was flat, was it actually round? Yes. You see, it wasn't that truth changed. Their perception of truth changed based on personal experience and concrete evidence. And I think a lot of us take this approach and we're telling other people, you know, this is flat when really it's round. And we just say, well, it's true just because we happen to want to believe that I need it to be true. That's not a good argument. In fact, the the big idea in your notes is is really kind of where, where I build this. The Bible is true. The big idea is that the Bible is not true because we believe it. We believe the Bible because it's true. This isn't true simply because I just wish it to be true or I want it to be true or I take it by faith that we could even do better. We could say it is true. Experience, history, and evidence shows us that it's true. And because it's true, I believe it. That's where we want to go this morning. In the little time that I have, I want to at least try and scratch the surface on two of the basic questions. I want to look at some of the evidence this morning. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but I want to help us give a better answer. Because you need to know that the people who want to know why we believe it just kind of smirk at us when we say, well, I believe it because I believe it. I believe it because I have faith to believe it. Even better, I believe it because it's true. It's true. And I'm not going to be a fool to try and come up against something that's ironclad proven to be true and reject it. So this morning, I want to just scratch the surface on two things. Why are we devoting any time this morning to answering the question of the trustworthiness of the Bible. Here's why. If even one sentence of the Bible is proven to be false or untrustworthy, then the entire book is suspect. 
and it loses its authority. Do you understand all anybody has to do to defeat Christianity is prove one fact in here is false. It's like putting a witness on the stand. They answer a thousand questions truthfully and you prove one question is a lie, they throw all their testimony out because you don't know how many other times they were lying. Do you understand all you'd have to do to disprove Christianity and disprove the veracity and the reliability of this Bible is prove one sentence is inaccurate. One sentence got changed by somebody. Or go in there and say, one of these sentences is false. It never happened that way. That's all you would have to do to pull all the planks out of what we hold to be true about Christianity. That's why we're taking some time to talk about this morning, because I want you to do better than cross your fingers and hope that this is true. If you read the fine print in your insurance policy to make sure you're covered when a tree hits your house, isn't it at least intellectually credible to say, yes, I accept Jesus by faith, but I also dig into here because I want to make sure that my internal security is everything I know about Jesus comes from this book. Don't you at least want to be sure and intellectually credible enough to make sure that where you're getting your information from is reliable and accurate and truthful? Well, pastor, even if you prove that it wasn't true, I'd still believe. Then you're a fool. If you prove that this isn't true, everything in my life comes crashing down because I've built it all on this. And if it's false and I still believe, that's foolish. You'd look at anybody else who's, you know, who's a grown person still believing in the tooth fairy and be like, you're a fool. And you're toothless. And why, you know, like all these kinds of, you know, but I mean, you would look at them like they're a fool because it's been proven that it's just an idea, that it's a fable, that it's a myth. And if they just say, regardless of all that, I'm still going to believe you'd say you're an absolute fool. This is why we're taking time to talk about this this morning. Um, So let me just ask, I may only be able to ask one question. I'll do my best. And again, we're just barely scratching the surface. I'm going to give you a lot of things that you can write down and dig into later. Question number one that I want to answer today. There's really two questions when it comes to reliability of the Bible. Question number one, and and you're all afraid to interact with me now because I might be like, wrong answer. So uh, relax, relax, okay? Is the Bible, question number one, is the Bible we have today the same as what was written down originally 2,000 years ago, or has it been changed? Okay, I, I, and I appreciate you saying the same. That, awesome. I'm going to give you some meat behind that. Because you understand why we're asking that? Because to get it from then to today, there's a whole lot of people who had their hand in copying it. And if they started copying things to make it sound better, to change some things, we've got major problems. So, you know, the original, when Peter wrote this down originally, how close is what he wrote down to what I have in my hand today? Again, we're not talking about truthfulness here. That's the next question. We're talking about reliability. Um, uh, the answer that, I'll give you the short answer and then a little bit of supporting evidence behind it. I've really got to go quick. Compared to all other literature of antiquity, you take every other book that was written in the same time period as the Bible, and there were other people that wrote, Homer, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Josephus, Eusebius, there's all kinds of other ones, Caesar. Compared to all other literature of antiquity, the Bible stands unrivaled in what we call manuscript authority, reliability, and accuracy. In other words, if you ranked them all, every other book written in the same time period in this test called, uh, you know, we, it's, we're talking about historiography and bibliography. You can Google those words later. Okay? It's the study that you treat all ancient literature with. When you compare the Bible to every other book of its time period, I want to show you that there really is, there's the first place and then second place is so far down on the map that it stands uniquely alone. Let me give you just a few key terms. Um, When we talk about this, there's two things you need to know, autograph and manuscript. Autograph, what I simply mean by that is um, the original scripture. In other words, the first time that Peter wrote down the letter that we read this morning, that's called the autograph, the original. We have zero originals. 
They're all gone. They're all destroyed. There are no originals. <gasps> Pastor, isn't this a problem? Well, of course not. There's no originals from this era that have survived. They, they didn't write it on stuff that could survive 2,000 years. It wasn't available. There's no books that we have the originals. They wrote it on papyrus and charcoal ink. And they started to recognize that even though that was great for the time, even the, the early church fathers and the people back in that day recognized that this is not a document that's going to survive for a couple thousand years. And as their technology began to advance, they had to keep copying and copying and making newer and newer and newer copies that we call manuscripts. A manuscript is a handwritten, not a typographic, but a handwritten copy of an original. So all we have from any books of this era, we don't have originals. We don't have originals of Homer. We don't have originals of Aristotle. We don't have originals of Plato. We have manuscripts. Originals were mostly written on papyrus. So there's three or four other things they used. Most of the time, it was using ink like charcoal. Now, I collect autographs, okay? Not a lot. When we got pregnant with Chase, I had to sell all that stuff because babies are crazy expensive. So I had to sell all that. But I have a few things left. And what's sad is that I collect a lot of baseball autographs on baseballs, on leather baseballs. And after about three or four years of having some of these autographs, I noticed something. That ink starts to fade. And some of these guys' autographs are so illegible, you can barely read them to begin with. But after about three or four years, if they're out in sunlight or something else, they start to fade. And that's using today's technology. You understand back in the day, if you've got stuff written on papyrus and charcoal ink, the longer in time that it goes uncopied, the more that original begins to disintegrate and it begins to fade. And so the distance between when you have the distance in time between the original and the copy becomes one of these big bibliographic tests. So what they do is they look at all the manuscripts of all the different books. And one of the first tests they say is how far in time, how much time elapsed between when the original was written and when we have the first copy. The shorter the distance in time, generally, not always, but generally the more reliable and accurate that copy is going to be. The farther away in time, generally, the less reliable and the less accurate a copy is going to be. So just for sake of comparison, um, if you look at, say, Aristotle's poetry. Aristotle's poetry was written, the original, 343 AD. We don't have the original. They've all been destroyed. The first manuscript was found, uh, was found to be copied about 1400, AD, about 1400 AD, a thousand years apart, Okay. And there is no scholar that debates the reliability and the accuracy of what we have in Aristotle's writing. Now, if I had time, I'd go through a lot of the other, I'd go through every other contemporary author, and you'll see they range, the distance ranges from 700 to 1500 years in time elapsed from the original to the first copy. What about the New Testament? Now, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, you can shrink that all the way down to 100 years. 100 years between the original and the manuscript. But if you ask me within the two, last two years, I could say we are now finding copies of the Gospel of John, manuscripts dated to the first century A.D. We can close that gap now to about 35 years. Next closest document, 700 years. And the more we dig into, especially in Cave 7 of the Qumran community, we are now finding manuscripts written in the same time period that the authors would have been alive. That's how close they're coming in, in distance. Um, so when it comes to the New Testament and other literature of antiquity, there's no close second place when it comes to the distance in time between the original and the first authenticated manuscript. This next point makes it even more clear. Um, the second test, bibliographic test, is the number of manuscripts available, the number of copies. 
Generally speaking, the more manuscripts you have of an original, generally speaking, the more manuscripts you have, the more reliable and accurate something is because it's easier to lay all these manuscripts out and reconstruct the original. The more manuscripts you have and the easier it is to identify any discrepancies. If you take 24,000 photocopies, lay them all out in this room and start comparing letter B to letter B, letter I to letter I, you can start picking out the discrepancies pretty quick. So generally speaking, the more of these things that you have, the more reliable and accurate it is. And because of the shortness of time, I'm just going to have to kind of cut to the chase. Uh, Plato, his writing. You know how many manuscripts of Plato we have? Seven. We've got seven. Have any of you engaged in deep debate over the reliability and accuracy of the, of the writing of Plato? No, we just kind of, kind of accept it. Um, everything else has been lost, yet no one questions it. Aristotle, we've got more. Aristotle's writing, we have 49 manuscripts. Everything else has been lost, and yet no one questions the authenticity, the reliability of the writing of Aristotle. Let me skip up the list. Let me go to number two on the list. Number two of the, of the letters of antiquity. Of all the other books written at this time, number two on the list with number of manuscripts, anybody know what it is? Homer, yes. Which one? Which of his writings? Iliad, number two on the list. As of, as of the last two years, 643 manuscripts. New Testament, ready? As of within the last two years, 24,633 manuscripts. 24,000. If you stacked all of the manuscripts of the next 10 books on the list on top of each other, you'd have a stack four feet high. If you stacked all the New Testament on top of each other, you would have a stack a little bit over a mile high. And if you went through and listed all the discrepancies between the 24,000 copies, there are some. Some of them, they they spelled John with two N's. That counts as one. Some of them, they spelled resurrection with one S. That counts as a discrepancy. Individual letters. 80% of the discrepancies are simply spelling. If you wrote down all the discrepancies between 24,000 copies, you could fill one half of one sheet of paper. And none of those things affect any major doctrine. So, when it comes to, is it reliable and accurate against the original? History overwhelmingly says... Yes, it is unparalleled. See, a lot of times historians opposed to Christ use a double standard when it comes to manuscript evidence. They accept Aristotle. They accept Homer. They accept all these other individuals because of the age test and the number of copies test. But then when you come to the Bible and it absolutely exceeds these things for some reason, then they want to use a double standard on the Bible. But when second place on the list is 643 and first place is 24,633, that's saying something, isn't it? You know if you destroyed all the autographs, all the manuscripts, all the, you destroy everything we've got, destroy all the manuscripts, all 24,000 of them, you could still reconstruct the entire New Testament with the exception of 11 verses. Just because of the early letters and correspondence that the church fathers wrote back and forth. There's over 84,000 of these letters that exist, and many times when they wrote a letter to a church, they'd write two or three chapters at a time. You could reconstruct, Josh McDowell's done it. You can re- reconstruct the entire New Testament except for 11 letters, even if you destroy, 11 verses if you destroyed all of them. So the idea of that, what was intended to get to us, getting to us, yes. Now in the three minutes I have left, let's talk about is it true. (laughs) Question number two. Is what was written down true? Why are we asking? Because if what was written down is not true, I don't care what was written down. 
Is what was written down true? We know it's accurate in, in terms of it was what the original authors wrote down, but if they wrote lies, they just got to us accurately, if that makes sense. Um, so let me just read through this. Here's the answer, a short answer, an answer. There are others. The eyewitness evidence of Christianity for the deity of Christ is absolutely sufficient, but it is not exhaustive. What do I mean by that? The eyewitness evidence of Christianity for the deity of Christ is sufficient, but not exhaustive. What do you mean by that? John, uh, let me read this to you. It's John chapter 20. Cool verse in here. Who wrote John? Not a trick. You're all scared. <laughs> not a trick. Who wrote John? John, very good. John, who was an apostle. Who was... If you go back and read uh, the beginning of John, you'll see him say things like, I'm writing to you about the things which we have seen, heard, and touched. He's saying, we're not writing to you what we think happened. We're giving you eyewitness, firsthand testimony. He's throwing the argument back in the lap of anyone who would doubt the credibility of what they're writing. In John chapter 20, um, he says this in verse, I can, can't see because light here, hold on. The, John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by, leave, by believing in him you may have power in his name. Here's what he's saying. If John would write down everything that Jesus did, he wouldn't have enough pages to write it down. In other words, you don't have the exhaustive story of Jesus. There's more that happened than what was actually written down. So it's not exhaustive. But he says, we've written enough down that if you believe in it, that you will believe in Jesus the Messiah. So it is sufficient. In other words, he's saying it's true. We're just not, not trying to pass it off that it is exhaustive. The writers of the New Testament wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts. Okay, 2 Peter 1.16, here's Peter writing again. We are not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. Go through the New Testament, you'll find in every single book, it was either written by an eyewitness or by a historian who went to eyewitnesses. Read the beginning of Acts. Luke, who was likely paid by Theophilus, as a historian, to go investigate these claims about Jesus and bring it back to Theophilus and present a case as to whether he really was or he really wasn't the Messiah, Luke says, these things come from eyewitnesses. Why, if you're making up a lie, would you write the names of everybody you talk to in the document that you're lying about, encouraging those people who read it, who are hostile to what you're reading, go to the eyewitnesses who were still living at the time it was written and cross-examine them. Written isn't a word. Written is a word. If they're propagating a lie, why do they give their opponents the list of all the witnesses they talked to and said, go talk to them for yourself? That's a horrible way to try and pass a lie across the table. 
They wrote down eyewitness testimonies. Other verses you can look at. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. You can look at John 20, 30 through 31, which I just read. You can look at 1 Corinthians 15, 6 through 8. What's important about that verse? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Jesus, when he got out of the empty tomb, was alive for 40 days, and he appeared to 500 of you. He's appealing even to his hostile witnesses about their own experiences. 1 Corinthians, like I said, 1 Corinthians 15, 16, uh, 6 through 8. Acts chapter 39, or Acts chapter 10, verses 39 through 42 in Luke chapter 1. Every single one of those chapters reinforces this point. The writers of the New Testament did not hesitate to appeal to the knowledge and experience of their hostile readers to add credibility of their claims. Here's what Paul says in Acts 2, or Peter says in Acts 2.22. Keep in mind, this is Peter 40 days, this is 50 days after Jesus is crucified, not even two months. Fifty days earlier, Peter is afraid to acknowledge Jesus. Now, in Acts chapter 2, 50 days later, something so radically had changed, had changed his life so radically that now Peter stands up in a window in the streets in the busiest day of the year during the Feast of Pentecost, and he preaches perhaps the most intellectually credible presentation of Jesus Christ ever recorded in the Scripture to a group of people that was hostile to him. That he was lying even one time would have killed him and carried him out of their dead. He stands in the window. He presents Jesus to them. And what does he do in Acts chapter, uh, what, does he, what does he do? He says this, people of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him as you well know. What's he saying? He's saying, all of you who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, all of you who crucified him, here, I challenge you to dispute with me that he didn't do signs, that he didn't do wonders among you. He says, you saw them all. If he was lying, they would have killed him. How do they respond? 3,000 people say, we agree that that man that did all those signs, now that we're putting the pieces together, the tomb was empty. He is alive. We do believe him, and they accepted Christ. It makes no sense to suggest that what they wrote was false because it would have cost them their very lives. Conclusion. What we have in the Bible is what was written down, and what was written down is true. Pastor, there's a whole lot more questions. I realize that we could be here for seven hours, and maybe at that point we feel like we scratched the surface. As our worship team comes, here's how I want to close this whole thinking to you. This is a study that I just came across recently that was put together by Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, and Norman Geisler. And you'll have opponents of the Bible who will say, Listen, there's all kinds of people throughout history who died for a lie. You're exactly right. You go back through history, you could write books on people who died believing in a lie. But the, the common thread between all of them is this. All of them believed it was the truth. Every person who died for what we discovered later was a lie believed at the time that it was the truth. Here's what I want to say to you. If anybody in all of history knew the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the empty tomb was a lie, it was the people who wrote the New Testament. They didn't believe because of what someone told them. They believed because of what they saw. Ten of the twelve of the, of the apostles we know for sure died some of the most horrific deaths ever recorded in history. And all they would have had to do to avoid those deaths is simply recant their belief in the empty tomb and the resurrected Christ being the Messiah. That's all they would have had to do. But they were so convinced, so convinced that they were willing to give their life for that. 200 years before Jesus came, 
Um, If you go back and study rabbinical literature of that time period, 200 years before Christ, the rabbis were teaching in the synagogues, every boy, girl, man, and woman, they were teaching that the Old Testament, they they weren't trying to deceive, they were trying to interpret Isaiah. And they started teaching that there would be two messiahs who would each come one time. There would be a suffering messiah who would come. And then there would be a political messiah who would come. And they kept teaching this up until the time of Christ and up until the time when the Romans came to occupy Jerusalem. And at the time the Romans took over Jerusalem, the people became very discouraged and disillusioned by the teaching from the rabbis and began to lose hope. And the rabbis thought, we need to beef up our teaching on the Messiah coming as the political king to deliver us from the Romans. So Jesus differed from their teaching. Jesus said, it won't be two messiahs who will come one time each. It will be one messiah who will come two times. And you can trace through the New Testament, you can see every time that people tried to figure out if he was going to be the political Messiah and he didn't agree to be the political Messiah, people started to desert him. In fact, the apostles who followed him to the end became increasingly discouraged. Look at the questions they asked Jesus. At this time, Matthew 24, at this time will you set up your kingdom? Are they talking about a suffering Messiah? Or are they talking about a political Messiah? Talking about a political Messiah. Will we get to sit at your right hand and your left hand? Are they talking about a suffering Messiah or a political Messiah? They believed in all the teaching they had received that Jesus was going to be the political Messiah, except he failed two critical tests. Number one, he was hung on a tree, which meant he was cursed. And number two, he died. And they believed that the Messiah could not do either of those things. So when Jesus was hung on a tree and when he died, you see the disciples going home despondent. Why? Because their idea of a political Messiah had been dashed, and they thought they signed up for the losing team. But something so radically changed their opinion that 50 days later, they're standing in Jerusalem preaching the gospel, and 10 of the 12 of them will go on to be murdered because they would not deny the existence of the empty tomb. What was it? Their ironclad belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their ironclad belief that Jesus raised from the dead, that he was alive, that he was the Messiah. So either these guys were in on perpetuating a lie and they went to the grave being, being in, in many cases, boiled alive or crucified upside down or stoned because they would not recant or they were telling the truth. And, friend, you might not understand all the arguments. My question is, do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Do you believe he lived a sinless life? Do you believe he died in your place like the Bible says that he did? Do you believe he rose from the grave? Do you trust the apostles? Do you trust the eyewitnesses who were there who spilled their blood and gave their lives to make sure you and I could hear about it? Friend, at the very kernel of our faith is that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe in an empty tomb and you believe in him being your Lord and your Savior, that's all it takes to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the invitation I want to make for you this morning. I know I'm just telling you what the apostles have told me to what I believe is the historically reliable, accurate, faultless, powerful, transcendent word of God that came from the eyewitnesses who saw it. And even though they wanted to believe otherwise, came face to face with the truth and their lives were radically changed because of it. It survived today to get into our hands so that you and I can have a pathway to have relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? I want to give you an invitation to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Every time we have a service, we do that. Friend, do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in a risen Savior? Have you ever confessed that belief to Jesus yourself? Have you accepted his offer of forgiveness for your sins? Have you confessed him to be the ultimate Lord and ruler of your life? That's the pathway to coming to faith. We are saved by grace that God brings through our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, pastor, you just said we need to have the answers. Why? 
That's important for growing as a Christian, but it's not a prerequisite to come to know Jesus. You have to be able to believe the truth as presented to you by the Bible. Today it's through, through a servant like me, or maybe in your life it's been through a presentation you heard from somebody else, and I'm just coming along later on. But if you want to be sure of your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, you want to be sure of your relationship with God, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. Same prayer that I prayed when I accepted Jesus. You can pray it for yourself right in your seat this morning. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are the son of God. I believe you lived a sinless life. I believe you died on the cross in my place. I believe you went to the grave, but you rose from the dead. And I believe you're alive today, just like it says in the Bible. I receive your forgiveness for my sins. I confess that I have lived a life without you doing things my own way. But today that changes. I step off of the throne of my life and I invite you to sit on that throne. You are now my Lord. I am your servant. Thank you for saving me. Teach me to walk in your ways. In your name I pray. Amen.